So you, ha you have conflict. It can be external or internal. And you can have stakes, right, which are external or internal. What am I going to lose if I go with this person and follow my love? What am I going to gain if I go with this person and follow my love? If I marry this person or if I commit to this person, will my family be harmed in any way? Will I be in bodily harm? Well, where does bodily harm come from? Well, are they in the military? Am I a civilian? Am I in the military? Like, how do you explore a landscape of conflict that can keep two people credibly away from each other, right? And the answer was there, there, there wasn't a lot, right? So it all had to be internal thing. Like, oh, I fucked you when, when we were 19 and you dicked me over. Well, then he's a dick. So why are you going with him? Okay. Or I'm a flake and I'm dating five different men and I, I don't really want to commit to anyone. Well, then she doesn't look like a great heroine, right? So, so the thing is, is if you look at a paranormal world where the external conflicts can be arbitrarily created by the author to keep two people away from each other, you suddenly have life and death stakes that are believable. You have social issues. Like for one of the criticisms that the Black Dagger Brotherhood got in the beginning was that it was a very misogynistic society. And my thing is, is yes, it was a very misogynistic society. It had shit that needed to be fixed in it. So part of what I wanted to show was the evolution of how does how does this world that these people live in go to a place where people are respected more, right? Well, you had to start with things shitty, you know? And so like, for example, with Lover, Lover Revealed, when Marissa goes and dates Butch as a human and falls in love with him, she gets kicked out of her, out of her home, right? And so it's like, so, the, so par the paranormal world offered all of a sudden super high stakes that were not so close to what was really happening in the world that you couldn't read them and enjoy a suspension of disbelief that you didn't feel like you were going to see on the fucking television the next morning, right? And then you have worlds that can be created or explored where there are external conflicts that can keep people away from each other. And so I feel like and then the third thing is, is all of a sudden you had a whole different class of heroes. You had vampires and you had werewolves and you had. So when was the, the last time that a whole category of hero got opened up like that? That was the voice of J.R. Ward. The next in our Trailblazer series. Yes, amazing. So this week you will be hearing us talk to J.R. Ward about uh, her journey through romance, what it's like to be fired in romance and come back swinging, and all sorts of things that are so fascinating about her process, about the Black Dagger Brotherhood, and about kind of how these characters came into her head and how she transferred them to ours. You're listening to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And here is our conversation with J.R. Ward. Welcome, J.R. Ward. We are over the moon to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very grateful. We are avowed JR <laughs> fans here at Faded Mates, but uh, this this whole series, the Trailblazer series, is really about us one getting a chance to talk to all of our favorites and really sort of mine. I like all. how you're giving it all away, Sarah. I mean, I'm like, like no, this is the important work of. <laughs> 
of, you know, interviewing the most important people in the genre as opposed to, like, us being like, ah, J.R. Ward, which is my <laughs> current state of being. It's fine, everyone. <laughs> um, we are also obviously really trying to have a conversation with the people who we believe were instrumental in building this genre and making it so big and so broad and so vast and cool. So uh, why don't we get started at the beginning? Would you okay. talk a little bit? Now, I happen to know where you went to college. <laughs> I did. I did. I, I, I went to college. It was great. <laughs> um, and we are both Smithies, and I'm very thrilled. I've- oh, my God. I didn't know you guys were Smithies, too. I'm not. Sarah I is. Am yeah. Jen, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Jen is not. But I am a Smithy. And so- I am a proud Smith College woman. And I'm really excited because I'm actually a second generation one. My mom also went to Smith. And my daughter wants to go to Smith. Yes. You've yes. completed the circle. That's exciting. I am so excited. And I can remember being there as a freshman and being like, okay, mom, I'll meet you over at, uh, you know, XYZ building. And she was like, and I said, so here's how you do that. And she's like, Jess, I went here. Remember? I said, oh, right, 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 right. So I hope to have that experience with my daughter. Yeah, so I, I'm a Northfield Mount Herman person and a Smith College person. And then I went to Albany Law School because even though my mom said, hey, you should write romance novels uh, for a living. I said, mom, are you crazy? I, I was a double major in art history and history with a medieval concentration in both, which meant I could make no money at all coming out of Smith. And um, I said, coming out of anywhere, to be fair. Yeah, to be fair, not just Smith. Um, And I was like, no, I I, I have to go make money. So I got to go to law school. And so I went to law school and, you know, I, I always wrote on the side. I, I, I love romance. It was, I read my first Harlequin presents and I was hooked. And, um, you know, I, 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 I wanted to try and write the kind of books that I loved to read. And um, I, I took a couple stabs at it. And then um, I was working up in Boston at one of um, Harvard's medical centers. And I, you know, was writing on the weekends because I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't do anything but work out because I'm the world's most boring person. And all I did was stay home and type. And that was what kind of kept me going during those years where everyone else was going out and still partying and going to bars. And I was working and writing and no regrets. And um, I was fortunate enough to sell my first four books to Ballantyne that were pretty standard romance fare. They were kind of, um, I wouldn't say modeled after Nora Roberts, but certainly that traditional romance happily ever after. And they were critically well, uh, critically well acclaimed. One of them finaled for the Rita. Um, but I was let go. I was fired from my publisher because they weren't selling very well. When was this? This was back in 2003-ish late 2003, um, the sales were just not there and they were great. They were super fun books, but it's really hard to, it was hard to break out then. It's hard to break out now. And so after I was fired, I had moved down here to Louisville, Kentucky with my husband. And I went from being Jessica Bird, a lawyer up in Boston to little Neville's wife Mm -hmm. here in Louisville. (laughs) That didn't go over very well. Um, not, not that I don't love my husband, but I just, you know, I, I don't, it was a little bit of a culture shock. And so I ended up switching agents and 
the, the agent that I went with had a, a deep background in romance. And she said, bottom line is you have to decide what a Jessica Bird book is. And so I, I sat around and, and nothing came to me. And I was terrified that I was going to have to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. And then <laughs> all of a sudden, yeah, it was just, you know, and no Horrifying. offense to lawyers, you know. Um, but I really, I'm not, I'm a really um, passionately pragmatic person. And so I was like, well, you got to live in, you got to exist in this world. And I wanted to follow a dream, but dreams don't tend to pay the bills. So right. I I was astonished when Wrath and the Brotherhood showed up in my brain. And I had 10 books <laughs> right there. The whole world came to me. Before we go go to that, can we go back to something really interesting you said when you started, which is that your mom told you you should write romance novels? Yeah. So is this something that you like you shared with her that you read together, or she just knew oh, that fuck you loved no. them? No, no, okay. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. No, my mom is you – no. Know, what I love about my mom is – so my mom grew up in New England in a well-to-do family that had very clear ex- – expectations for women that they were to marry very well and to cultivate a beautiful house and raise beautiful children and shut the fuck up. Mm. I'm just being real honest. Yeah. Now, this is not disparaging her family at all. That was the culture that she grew up in. And she married my father, who came from a very old, very well-to-do family. And my the expectations for my mom were very limited in terms of what she was. She wasn't allowed to work. You know, one didn't do that um, outside of the home. Um, and she had this amazing 3D brain. And what she did as she was married to my father, she did houses over. Whatever house they were living in, she did the work herself. She put carpeting in. She put wallpaper up. She painted. She learned how to plumb. She, and she did this all while my father was outside of the house. So he wasn't necessarily aware of these skills that she was developing because she had this passion for housing. So she... Um, ended up divorcing him when I was 18 because she had to go out and just live her life. She, she had raised me, gotten me into Smith and it was time for her to just go out and be a contractor. And now she's done 36 houses over. She, her most recent one at the age of 79 she took a 1926 Georgian manor house that had been lived in by hoarders and had 40 commercial dumpsters empty it out of the hoard. And she brought it into the 21st century. And she has a crew of men. My mom is a spectacular woman. And the fact that she was able to do this coming out of the environment that she did is just... I'm. I makes me teary. I'm so awesome. proud I'm of her. I'm glad I asked. You I'm know? really glad I asked that question. Want, then. I want your mom to come on. Oh, she's. <laughs> Can we know, add I like ten mean, minutes with your mom? <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't mean to be, you know, emotional over it, but I'm so fucking proud of her. 
you know, like way to be a kick-ass woman, you know? But anyway, the reason why she told me to write romance novels is because when I started reading them, I started collecting them. And back in the days, you know, with those Harlequins, they all had those numbers on. And so I was like Mm -hmm. passionately tracking the numbers and filling in my collections. And I loved, and, and I started writing them and I wrote my first romance novel uh, in the summer between um, Norfolk and Herman and Smith. And I got to, you know, beginning, middle and end. And I wrote it and she saw that I did that. And by the time I got out of college, I'd done another couple of them. And she was like, go write romance novels. I was like, are you out of your mind? I'm never going to be able to sell them. And she said, you will make more money and be more satisfied working for yourself than you'll ever be if you are an attorney in some nameless faces corporation. And she told me that I was like, mom, you're out of your mind. Okay. (laughs) And, and, but she was right. I I've been, I've had this amazing career that I pulled out of my ass somehow. And it really comes down to my mom's leadership that I turned away from. And she was right. So way to go, mom. Exactly. So now let's get to the writing piece. So you talk about these the the Black Dagger Brotherhood just arriving as a as a brotherhood. Can you talk literally talk about how that happened? Um, Where if it was sort of all at once, can you pinpoint why or? Yeah, I have no well. So the thing I always fail when people say, you know, can you give us craft advice? Can you tell us how you do this? I, I have no fucking clue. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I really don't. I, I, you know, I was, I was, I was fired by Valentine. They should have fired me because I wasn't making the money. And one of the things that when, when, when writers come to me and ask me for advice about getting published or whatever, I, I always feel like I fail them because I want to tell them that they're going into this lovely, wonderful, warm, supportive environment, but it's, it's a fucking business, right? And, and I'm sorry, this is not your child. It's not your baby. Like if you want to self-publish, then yes, you have the control. You have the financial risk. You have the ability to usher your content forward in a way that, that, that is in line with your values and, and you have that control. But if you go to a third party and you want to be published, it's a business. And, and, and so, yes, they had absolutely every right to fire me because no one fucking knew I was going to be J.R. Ward. They were not being irresponsible. I would have done the same goddamn thing if I'd been in their circumstance. So it's, I want to tell writers that just because you're published doesn't mean that you have some greater right to take up space in the writing world than someone who isn't published. If you write, you are a writer. Like, own that space. You don't need anyone else to give you permission to own that space. And you certainly don't need a rubber stamp from a publisher to make you feel like you're any more worthy than I am. We're all the same. You know? And and. I just, I, I know I'm getting off in a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm so passionate about empowering particularly women to take up space yeah. because they can determine what space they take up. They don't need anybody else giving them permission to do shit in this world. 
<laughs> and and so so when I was fired, I freaked out and I sat in front of a blank screen for two weeks. And I, I had tried to do some like that. This was back right after 9-11 when we were transitioning out of the military hero books. Because mm-hmm. after 9-11 happened, I believe there were so many people where they really had military spouses serving. It was suddenly a dangerous world. I think part of the paranormal kick that happened two or three years after 9-11 was very much readers wanting to read pathos that was not and could not be real. Because the right. the life, you know, with 9-11 and everything that was going on, life was very, very real. So I think that's part of the reason why paranormal really, well, that and there were some great authors doing some great shit at that point. I mean, Sherilyn Kenyon and Laurel K. Hamilton, Christine Feehan, there were some people who were doing paranormal really, really well. Um, and then Twilight came out and blew the, the, the genre, the subgenre completely wide open for romance. So, so were you reading at the time when you were during those two weeks of freaking out nope. and prior nope. to that, were there? No, I don't read. Once I started publishing romance, I stopped reading it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I, I really, I can't read romance. I can't read anything paranormal. I can't, I, I don't. And that, that's the, the one thing I don't regret it, but the one co- unintended corollary to publishing romance is that I'm no longer a romance reader. Um, and, and mostly it's because by the time I'm finished with my own work, I, I want a break, an intellectual break from the subject matter of people falling in love and things going tits up and figuring things out. And you know what I mean? Like I read a lot of literature. I don't read you know, I, I didn't read for years, for like 10 or 15 years, I didn't read at all. But now I'm getting to the point where I'm reading, I'm reading My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshefe right now. And um, so, so that's what I, I kind of had to give up the romance thing. And I can't really tell you why other than... Brains work different ways, I, I, right? I, I want to put, yeah, yeah, my brain just got tired. Now, at this point, were you done lawyering? So you were only writing? Yeah. So when I married my husband, he waited until he put a ring on it and said, I no longer know what I'm doing in Boston. And I said, well, I'm not moving to Kentucky. And <laughs> that famous last know. words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The punchline to that one. And the truth is, is I actually love living in Louisville and it's, you know, for, for the South, it's a very progressive city. And I, you know, I, I, I really, I mean, it certainly has had some very difficult times in the last, like, you know, uh, two years, but, um, but largely I, I found this very, a, a really good place for me to live and to raise my daughter with my husband and all that shit. But I, um, I, I, I left all corporate America when I moved down here because I had these contracts with Valentine and I figured, well, I'm just going to write romances and that's going to be my job. And is this going to be great? And then I got fired. So I, I, I actually started to deconstruct, uh, romance novels to figure out how they worked. I worked on my craft. Um, Sue Grafton, I had met and she'd become my mentor and she really gave me some books to read. And we talked a lot about craft. And I, I sat in front of this book. I never, I've never been so scared in my life because I've always had pictures and stories in my head. And then all of a sudden I felt this presence kind of stalking me. And it felt like a physical presence, even though it was all in my mind. And all of a sudden it was about two weeks of that. And all of a sudden I woke up and I, I had this wonderful little setup with this, these floor to ceiling windows that I could open and, um, 
I can remember exactly what the room looked and the table looked like and where my computer was when Rath showed up. But the weird thing was, is his name was Roth. And I couldn't figure out what Roth was. I was like, Roth? So I, I wrote, it's the, a retirement uh, product, JR Word. There, That's there what it you is. go. Okay, good, good to know. It's, yeah, it's my Roth IRA. Um, <laughs> but I was like, Roth. I was like, Roth. I was like, what the hell? I was like, so I wrote the, and, and, and all of the brothers came with them, and I saw all of them, and, it, and I, I, I thought to myself, what is this? And I'd never written that kind of book before. Right, because you're shifting from, you know, a, a pretty standard contemporary, the Jessica Bird books. Yeah. Um, you came up through medieval, it sounds yep. like, in college. So he could have been, a. it could have been a historical, but it was not. Well, and the, the thing was, I was a huge Stephen King fan. And I'd read a lot of horror. I loved him. Um, and I, I, I had gone and noticed on the shelves, because back then Borders was still alive. I had noticed that people were starting to write books about paranormal heroes, like the vampire could be the hero. And I remember thinking that was quite revolutionary. But I, I, I was not consciously aware. The last thing in the world I thought I was going to ever write was a paranormal because it just, I don't, but that's what showed up. And so I wrote, it really only took me about two weeks. And I had, you know, the first three chapters but outlining the book, one of the things that they always told you was, if you're going to send in a pitch, you should have a, a brief outline. I sent 100 pages in between the outline because I wanted to give the publisher an idea that it was so much more than just the people falling in love. That I, So I included you know, the, the details about the aristocracy and this, the 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 sanctuary and the scribe virgin and the language and the traditions and the ceremonies. And I remember being in tears as I mailed it off because I thought no one is ever going to buy this because it was too far out there. It was like, you know, at the end during the mating ceremony, he gets her name carved in his back. Like, like, you know, I mean, come on, who the hell is going to buy this thing? Listen, that was great. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember her watching it with Welsey and saying, why couldn't she have been named? Why did she have to be 10 letter Elizabeth? Why couldn't she have been, you know, but, and so I really was shocked that, that, that two different publishers wanted it and got into a little bidding war over it. And, and, oh, and so the Roth Wrath thing, I'm literally just about to send it out. And I thought, Roth, I was like, that's not a sexy name. It's like, who the fuck is that? And then I was like, no, I'm the one who's got this wrong. It's Wrath. And then as soon as that became apparent, and I have this little sketch that I drew of Zadis. This was in 2004, um, where I, I, I drew a picture of him and I had his name next to it. And I, I kept it all these years. And then, and, and really it was a case of off to the races and having been fired, I never, I have a little bit of a, I need to be perfect. I need to perform really high. I need to jump really high. I need to get the A. I mean, that's kind of who I am as a person. But I remember when the first book came out, I didn't expect anyone to read it. I expected it to fall through the cracks. And I was originally going to do Zadist's book as the last of the 10. This was only going to be a 10 book series. And I remember thinking when this fails, if I don't get to write 
Zeta's book. I will never get over it. And so I deliberately bumped him up to the third book because I thought, you know, and sure enough, he, his book was the one that first hit on the, I, Dark Lover hit on the extended New York Times list three weeks after it came out. And um, in the I, olden days. Yeah, yeah. right. When, and the funny thing was, as I remember, I, I shit you not. So it comes out three weeks later, I get a telephone call at 536 on Wednesday uh, night. Wednesday. <laughs> and, and, and I said, that's it. I'm fired. That's it. They're firing me. I really did. Cause I knew it was from my, I knew it was from my, my editor. I was like, she goes, Jess, you made the extended list. I was like, extended list for what? I didn't even know. Like it the never extended fired on. list. Yeah. Yeah. The extended fired list. This is the extended list that people were letting go. Um, and I was, you know, I was really shocked. And then I can remember going to um, RWA shortly after I know it was Dark Lover came out or whatever. And the number of people who showed up to to get that book signed, I mean, I was just dumbfounded. This week's episode of Faded Mates is brought to you by Blackstone Publishing, publishers of Nora Zelovansky's novel, Competitive Grieving. So this book is so beautiful. The premise is Ren, our, our heroine, has lost her best friend in the world. They were friends since childhood. And he was a rising TV star who had a lot of hangers on, like a lot of people who wanted to be close to his face. Parasocial relationships with him, yeah. Yeah, and really like parasites, right? And so, and they all kind of show up at the after his death to his home and like start picking through his things. And Ren's job as somebody who's known him her whole life, um, his mother kind of asks her to go through his stuff and like process his stuff. And in the processing of his stuff alongside his attorney, who is our hero, these two characters kind of come to terms with their own grief and come to terms with this question of like, do we ever really know somebody for real? Like, yeah. do we ever, the people who we think we know the best in the world, do we really know them? It is a beautiful book. It's set in New York City. It's so insightful. If you love a, a book with like atmosphere, especially a city atmosphere, this will do it for you. Um, and I just have to say like, this book is, if you loved Beach Read and you right. want something that really scratches all those similar itches, this is the one for you. Competitive Grieving is available in print and ebook and newly available in audio. And if you stick around at the end of this episode, you can hear a preview of Competitive Grieving. So thank you to Blackstone Publishing and Nora Zelovansky for sponsoring this week's show. I mean, there, but there's a cup. There are a few things happening at this point, right? So, this is at the in this paranormal is just everywhere at this point, right? Yes. I mean, there. Yes. The readers are coming out of the woodwork for your books and for books in you named some of the other authors who are yeah. just bringing in legions of readers. Yeah. I. I I mean, I don't think I've ever seen readers come at such yeah. a fervent pace than they have yeah. for you and and others in paranormal at this particular time. And so I wonder if there's appreciating that you don't think about, you know, that you're you don't you don't talk about craft very much. I mean, clearly something about these books is really speaking to people. And are you able to sort of put your finger on what that is now in hindsight? 
so I have a theory, and you can tell me to fuck right off with this because I could be hogging out my ass. We will not. So we, okay, so here's my theory. Recognizing that this was almost 20 years ago, so that there were a lot of social justice issues that had not been examined and respected and properly matriculated, which there's still more work to be done, into the normal discourse and into economic, uh, uh, you know, industries and, and economics and all that stuff. Relatively speaking, and again, please understand, I need to acknowledge the fact that we have a lot of work still to do. We have certainly come even further. We are not finished. Um, but back, when you think about the number of external conflicts that could keep two people away from each other, Okay. Basically, back in the early 2000s, you you could marry interracially. You could marry someone who was poor. You could marry someone who's rich. You could get pregnant before wedlock. You could decide not to get married at all. You could uh, marry someone from a different state, from a different country. You could... There were very few external conflicts that could keep two people who were in a loving relationship away from each other. Now, please, I'm acknowledging yet again that we there were a lot of social justice issues that, that were not respected or recognized back then and still need to be further recognized. Please do not misconstrue this statement for me condoning where we were or suggesting that the work is finished. That's very important to me. But if I but I'm placing this within a historical context, I think the reason why paranormal in particular exploded so much when it did. Number one, with 9-11, I think people really didn't want to read about death occurring. So, okay, so here's the question. So you, you have conflict, it can be external or internal, and you can have stakes, right? Which are external or internal. What am I gonna lose if I go with this person and follow my love? What am I going to gain if I go with this person and follow my love? If I marry this person or if I commit to this person, will my family be harmed in any way? Will I be in bodily harm? Well, where does bodily harm come from? Well, are they in the military? Am I a civilian? Am I in the military? Like, how do you consistently, how do you explore a landscape of conflict that can keep two people credibly away from each other, right? And the answer was there, there, there wasn't a lot, right? So it all had to be internal thing. Like, oh, I fucked you when, when we were 19 and you dicked me over. Well, then he's a dick. So why are you going with it? Okay. <laughs> or I'm a flake and I'm dating five different men and I, I don't really want to commit to anyone. Well, then she doesn't look like a great heroine, right? So, so the thing is, is if you look at a paranormal world where the external conflicts can be arbitrarily created by the author to keep two people away from each other, you suddenly have life and death stakes that are believable. You have social issues. Like for one of the criticisms that the Black Dagger Brotherhood got in the beginning was that it was a very misogynistic society. And my thing is, is yes, it was a very misogynistic society. It had shit that needed to be fixed in it. So part of what I wanted to show was the evolution of how does 
how does this world that these people live in go to a place where people are respected more, right? Well, you had to start with things shitty, you know? And so like, for example, Lover, Lover Revealed, when Marissa goes and dates Butch as a human and falls in love with him, she gets kicked out of her, out of her home, right? And so it's like, so the, so parent, the paranormal world offered all of a sudden super high stakes that were not so close to what was really happening in the world that you couldn't read them and enjoy a suspension of disbelief that you didn't feel like you were going to see on the fucking television the next morning, right? And then you have worlds that can be created or explored where there are external conflicts that can keep people away from each other. Right. And, and so then, I feel like, yeah. and then the third thing is, is all of a sudden you had a whole different class of heroes. You That's had vampires what, yes. and you had werewolves and you had, so when was the, the last time that a whole category of hero got opened up like that? Right. You know? Right. And heroes who were, could be also heroes during a time, you know, say literally save the world. They, yes. It was, it was, it was world saving post nine. Within the, within the, the context of not being so real in the world that you couldn't read it and get lost in it, you know? Yeah. Pure escapism. Right. Which is yeah. what romance was to me growing up. Absolutely. So, Jess, you had this really interesting position, right? Because you had been through a war of your own as a contemporary romance writer with a failure, right? So at what point were you sitting in a room going, oh, my God, J.R. Ward, like, we are (laughs) doing a thing. Paranormal is something is happening. Um, I didn't. I didn't think anything was happening. I, I, so here's my orientation. I am an introvert by nature. I have been uh, put on the spectrum for autism. And the real world and relating to people is very confusing for me. Uh, I don't do it very well. I'm very well intended. I get a lot of shit wrong. So I hunkered down and just did my work. And I didn't pay a lot of attention to the success of my books I was terrified of getting fired again because I loved writing about the Black Dagger Brotherhood so much that all I cared about was getting to keep writing the books. And I had this very weird experience when Lover Revealed came out. I went and did a signing and 400 people showed up. I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? Yeah, I was what like, is what I'm talking about? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. So, no, I don't want you to think about, like, I was sitting there saying, oh, Jerry Ward's awesome. No, no. So, and what I remember every six months, because at that point, the first six books came out every six months, I'd go down to my hole with my boxer shorts, my dog, and my coffee pot. And then six months later, I'd pop back up and there'd be more people. And then I'd go back down into the hole and then there'd be more people. And I, and I remember thinking, being very confused about why this was happening and too afraid to enjoy any of it because I was constantly afraid of getting fired. And that was not a rational thing. It was just, there's this wonderful football hall of famer. He, in his hall of fame induction speech, said that his entire career was based on fear. And I would like to tell people that I was some self-actualized wonderful, calm, fucking yoga, meditation, (laughs) that I've ever had a slice of avocado toast or I would know quinoa if it came up and bit me on the ass. I don't. Uh, 
I wouldn't. I I have been all my life afraid of failing, afraid of fucking up the opportunities that I've gotten, afraid of not working hard enough, not being focused enough, not being good enough. And so even though I encourage women to take up space, I suspect it's because I myself struggle with it because I don't have any idea why my books found the place. I really don't. I don't have any idea why my books happened to capture the audience they did when they did. I have no idea why they, I still am lucky enough to have people read my books. I would feel much more confident if I could come up with a mathematical equation <laughs> based upon the laws of physics that said, you, Jessica Bird, because you were born at this place at this time in this second, were hereby granted by the powers that be and God, whether she or he is, that you were supposed to do this. Because I don't, it feels too random to me otherwise, and yeah. random scares me. And there are a hell of a lot more talented, better writers, and certainly better human beings than I am, who have not found the success that I have. So it makes no fucking sense. I don't get it. I'm grateful for it. I worship my readers. I am. I do not expect anyone to ever buy my books again. I feel like I have to earn it every time. I and that changes depending on you know the quality of my books. Some are great. Some are meh. Um, in my own opinion, I rarely am satisfied with anything I do. I can't read my books again because every time I see something in print, I just want to go and I'll find a word that's not right or something that's wrong or a continuity issue or every mistake I've ever been called at goes around in my brain yeah. constantly. Um, Gosh, this feels so, very real. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, I feel like I should interrupt You're a this little bit point. preaching to your own choir here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll blame myself. No. <laughs> you know, well, you know, it's interesting. And I have, I think I told this story when we did Dark Lover. Like, I started a new job around that time, a little, a couple of years later, maybe. And at the beginning of our like English department meetings, I'm a teacher, we would sort of say like what we read over the summer. And I remember like really like making a conscious decision to be like, I'm going to talk about the real things I enjoy reading in the summer. And, and Dark Lover was like the book I sort of like outed myself as a romance reader to my colleagues where I was like, well, here's what I read. And you know what? At the end of the meeting, one of my colleagues came up to me and was like, can I borrow that? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I, and I, thinking back, I feel like I have that same question. Like, well, why was that the book that I felt like I could say, yeah, here's what I read. And I wonder if it was just that it was like sort of this perfect mashup of like, you know, paranormal was so big and Twilight was really acceptable to like sort of talk about. And, um, you know, like I, I don't know either. Right. But it is about like world building and you're, what what Jess is doing in that book is like is big conversation stuff that we don't necessarily have to get into. But I mean, is it does feel like it's about mask. It's a question. And there are so many questions about masculinity and about the world that we live in. It's the, the beginning that, that opening of the, of the world yeah. of black dagger brotherhood in that darkness. It feels yes. so, it does feel like you're in a world of that is bad. And these people are going to have to grapple with it. Yeah. I think the other thing, well, I'm a middle school teacher at this time. It was like middle and high school teachers together in one department. And the thing I also think about a lot is like as a teacher, what I care about the most is 
I want kids to love reading. Yeah. And I think sometimes the high school English teacher's job is a little different. It's like I want kids to be able to deconstruct what they've read or appreciate yeah. the classics. And so it also felt like I was like putting like a stake in the ground. Like, you know what I care about? Loving reading. This is what I yeah. bring to the table as yes. a faculty member yes. in this department. Yes. We should love the books we teach. Yes. Right? And so I think that was the other thing. Like I read Black, I read Dark Lover in a like a fever dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? I still like remember it was so visceral. And I think I want kids to feel that way when they read. Whatever it is that makes them feel that way, I want them to feel like, yeah, this is awesome. This is an awesome way to feel. Let's talk about this more. You know, I, the, it's interesting because I, something is dawning on me as you guys are talking about this. I've never really thought about it before. When I went to write Dark Lover, and this is nothing against the throbbing swords of love and the <laughs> gasping yes. bosoms, her mounds, and the gasping and the mounding and, and, the, and the, the heavenly bongos. Um, <laughs> I remember approaching Dark Lover. Like, so, so basically... I just, I, so when I sat down, after I'd seen all these pictures in my head, I had an agreement with myself. One, this was clearly going to be the last book that I'm ever going to write because I'm going to be fired forever and I have to go being a lawyer, wearing a gray suit and living in a box for the rest of my life. All hope, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. So I made an agreement. I said, I am going to write exactly what I'm shown. The second thing I remember thinking is I'm going to write it in the tone of general fiction. I'm not going, I'm going to treat this as a general fiction book where the subject matter is romance, but, but the multiple viewpoints and the different strands of plots and the balance of the book moving forward was going to be general fiction. It wasn't going to be flowery romance, which is not to say that I have loved some, I have read some flowery romance shit and I love it. I <laughs> sure. love it. But I had been kind of burned with the idea that like, and I'm not saying Nora Roberts is a flowery romance writer. I wanted to write this book with a very dispassionate depiction of what I was shown. And I remember the Billy Riddle scenes and Butch taking Billy Riddle's face and grinding it into the linoleum floor in the emergency room. And I can picture that scene. So the scenes are so vivid to me. I can picture that scene. I can, I could tell you what the flex in the linoleum squares on that floor look like. And I, I, I wonder if, some of, I, I pushed everything as hard as I possibly could push it. When Beth looks at Rath and asks whether or not he would have actually killed Butch, because remember, like, I, there's in that alley and he's got, got Butch by the throat. He was going to kill him and he wouldn't have bothered him. It was a human. Human meant nothing, right? And, 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 and I think some of the romance novels that, that I came up reading and enjoying and loving and revering would have made an excuse or kind of buffed that out a little bit. Yes. And in the second book, When Lover Eternal, 
when rage has to go and have sex with another woman to get the energy levels down so the beast doesn't come out and 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 harm Mary, who's the one he really loves, he actually did go out and have sex with another woman. And I, uh, with 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 a I think I can't I think it was actually a human woman. I can't remember now. But I remember thinking, I'm going to put this in the book. And, and I remember thinking, I'm breaking the rules of romance. Because one of the rules that tends to run through romance, particularly then, was as soon as the hero and the heroine meet and form a connection. Sure. Now, if yeah. they don't have to have sex, they don't have to be in a relationship. If he is fucking another woman, and Game then over. they meet, you know, and then they meet, he will end that relationship, right? And here was the hero fucking another woman. And I remember thinking at that point, I was really going to get fired. I was like, that's it. <laughs> Career's over. He went and he porked this other woman and now it's dead. And, and that, that scene when he comes back and sits on the, when, after it happens, the scene when they're together, I can still picture it clear as day. And I, it was heartbreaking. And the thing was, is this is exactly what I was talking about. The external conflict. He had to manage his energy levels or the beast was going to come out and he might hurt her. And the way he did it was by going and having sex with other people. That is, that is an external conflict that could only exist in a paranormal world. And the, and the stakes are incredibly high. Of course. Right? And, and so I remember thinking, oh, shit, that's it. I'm getting fired. That's it. It's <laughs> happening. It's happening now. It's happening, people. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Avon Books, publishers of Beverly Jenkins's To Catch a Raven. This is part of the Women Who Dare series, and when I tell you what our heroine Raven is about to dare, you are going to know. It's so perfect. She is a well-known grifter. She's fearless, but this time around, she has to go undercover in the home of a former Confederate official to reclaim the stolen Declaration of Independence. Yes! Listen, this is what I want. I want all romances just to have this kind of plot. Yeah, absolutely. So she is going undercover as a like a housekeeper, and then the her partner is Braxton Steele, which is a romance hero's name if I have ever heard one. Name is Destiny. <laughs> That's right. And he is going to masquerade as the valet and driver. They both have their own reasons for being on this job, but fiery passions will erupt in their pretend marriage as they recover did I say it? The Declaration of Independence. Ah, so good. <laughs> I'm delighted by it. You can pre-order To Catch a Raven right now wherever you pre-order your books. Or next Tuesday, you can rush to get it in print or ebook or audiobook. Thank you to Avon Books and Beverly Jenkins for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. I have a question to sort of... A, a, a separate kind of writing question for you that that relates to these these dudes. Um, I want to talk about your dedications because I feel like yeah. they have always struck me as a writer as um, being really powerful. You you dedicate each of these books to the hero, correct? Yep, yep. And and, and lately, I've been actually dedicating them to the couples. But yep, yep, right. yep, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about choices there? Because I feel like. Um, you know, for somebody who started this conversation saying, like, this is a business, there is something immensely personal about oh, the yeah, business yeah. So, for you. So here's the thing. So this is the agreement that I have. The agreement is I write these fucking books for myself. When I am sitting at my little desk and typing my little heart out, 
that is a private moment between myself and the people in these worlds and what these people in these worlds choose to show me. I have no control over them. I don't know where the visions come from. I see everything as if it is a memory of a place that I live and experience. That is my personal time with these books and these characters. It is between myself and them. No one else is welcome in that space. Not my family, not the readers, not anyone. I'm not even welcome in that space. My job is to be a, a secretary and type my little heart out and, and describe what I'm shown in my head in a competent enough way so that when a reader reads it, they can approximate what I'm being shown in my head. I am merely a translator between these things that I don't know where the fuck they come from and I don't <laughs> know why they picked me. And, and, and I translate them into a medium where other people can kind of sort of experience what I do. And the feelings are all there, the sensations, the cold rooms, the taste of the food, the way things sound. Um, it is an immersive experience that's like being in a dream state. And I can run these scenes backwards and forwards. I can jump in and out of people's eyes and look at things from one person's eyes and hear their thoughts and how their clothes feel on their body. I can look through the eyes of another person, see a different perspective, different thoughts. A room feels cold to one person, feels hot to another. It's that level of detail and immersion. Then, as soon as I transmit that, that, sacred space to my publisher, it becomes a product. Right. So mm -hmm. it is a very clear bifurcation between the creative intimate space where I'm typing. And then I put on the hard headed businesswoman clarity of this is now a product because the book that I wrote for myself and those people that never changes. No matter what anyone does to the book afterwards, no matter oh, whatever. So the editorial process is separate from that. Um, well, you know, I'm very, very, very fortunate that at this point I am sort of a solo operator about that. I, I have a research assistant. I've worked for, for, for many, for, I don't know, 15 years now. Um, my publisher is amazing. Like I love Simon and Schuster. I love the people I work with at Simon and Schuster. I am, I mean, it is one of the most supportive and nurturing environments in a professional context I can imagine being in. JR, let's talk just names at this point. So who is, are you still with the same editor as you were from the, from the jump? No. no. So right now I'm with Hannah Bratton at Simon & Schuster Gallery, and I'm published by Jennifer Bergstrom, Jennifer Long, um, Hannah Bratton, um, and, you know, Andrew Nugent, who's um, Hannah's assistant, they're amazing. And I work with these incredible, I have an incredible copy editor who's just like fucking amazing. And uh, an incredible, my production editor is, she is fabulous. And she's like a friend of mine now. I really, people, I adore. Sorry, people don't understand. And I mean, I don't, I write historicals, right? And so I know about a world, but people don't understand just how massive the world is and how important these people are to keeping track for you too. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. It must yeah. Be. So, so, I mean, I have, you know, PR people and marketing people. I have a whole independent marketing team. I have my own social media managers. I have 
my research assistant. I've got my personal assistant who basically she's my best friend. She's my sister and she goes everywhere with me. And it's a huge J.R. Ward and the, the books as they enter a commercial stream. It is a big business. It is a big business, but it stems from that very, very private space in my bedroom typing. And what's great about it, so basically no one edits my books. I, I myself and my research assistant edit my books now. There's no way any editor or any copy editor could possibly keep up with 38 books. Right. And and my, my research assistant and I, we even make mistakes and the readers call call us on it. We've we, we dropped balls or, you know, whatever. And, and there's just no way, you do the best you can, you try and make peace with it and, you know, with mistakes and stuff. But they all stick with me, uh, including Butch dematerializing in Blood Vow, which I still can't believe happened. But anyway, <laughs> so, fuck. Um, but, but, you know, I um, it is a big, big, big business, and it's an international business. And I love the people I work with. It's a, it's 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 a lucrative business. Um, even in um, you know, this is very challenging times in the book industry right now. Um, and I'm very grateful that I I I have my audience, and I'm very very grateful. I still can write these books because again, there are a lot of very 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 good um, authors that you know, have transitioned into other careers because they couldn't, you know, so, because, you know, again, there's expansion and contraction in any market. And I'm very lucky to still be here along with, you know, I mean, Christine Feehan, still kicking ass, taking names, you know, um, Sherilyn Kenyon, still publishing, Royal Kale Hamilton, still publishing. I've heard rumors that Cressley Cole is going to bring out another book, which I'm like, I, I, she's a phenomenal writer. Um, so there are a lot of us in the paranormal world. And then, you know, you look at Nora um, and, and, and then you look at, you know, with the, the success of Bridgerton, I think the streaming services have offered new opportunities for um, romance novels now are, you know, uh, Virgin River, Robin Carr stuff um, with Roma Roth over at Netflix. So, I mean, I'm just very lucky to still be in this business, but to take it back to where we started, what has not changed is that very quiet, intimate space. And no matter where my book goes or what I change, you know, uh, as part of copy edits or word changes or whatever, I still have that original draft that I wrote for myself. And that has not altered at all. And when, and, and that's the thing is when, when people ask, you know, do you read negative reviews? No, I, I don't read regular re, re, negative reviews. Negative reviews and positive reviews are for readers by readers. There's no reason for me to be in that space. I'm sorry. If you put a product out there and someone pays their good money to buy it, bring it home, they're allowed to tell you it fucking sucks. Okay. <laughs> they're allowed. Yeah. I'm sorry, if you go to Kroger's and you buy a bunch of Ziploc bags and none of the goddamn fucking seals work, okay, maybe you got him overheated in the car on the way home. Maybe <laughs> you've got a hair across your ass. I don't know. Maybe they actually do suck. But you are allowed to go and say it sucks. Yeah. And, and, I'm, that, and the thing is, is that, and I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't, I, I tend to be very hard. My business side is very hard-headed and very tough-skinned. Okay. It's, I'm very unemotional about it. I'm not sentimental. 
And I don't want to diminish the hurt that some authors feel when they read negative reviews. That's a very real thing. And I do not mean to cast any aspersions on people who do get their feelings hurt or get angry. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm please know I'm not commenting on anyone else's experience other than my own. But for me, those are none of my business, you know? And here's the thing. If my books suck, people are going to stop buying them. I'm going to see it in the sales. You know what I mean? One of the questions we've also asked people, though, is like, how how about the readers or the readership that gives you positive feedback, right? That that really views the Black Dagger Brotherhood and you as an author as being someone who is shepherding them through romance. Do you, do you have those sorts of interactions with your fans? I suffer from a massive case of imposter syndrome. I am convinced those fans have read someone else's book and got it confused <laughs> with something I wrote. I, I, I really, I mean, I, 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 I am being slightly jocular. I, I am... I'm never going to forget how I felt when I was standing in the parking lot of the Whole Foods on Shelbyville Road in Louisville, Kentucky, back in 2009, when I learned from my agent that my publisher was not renewing my contract and letting me go. I'm never, ever, ever going to get over that feeling of, you know what, you gave it a shot, we tried, it didn't work, you're out. And I, I am so dumbfounded that anyone reads my books and so grateful. And again, that's the irony of ironies. I tell women in particular to take up space and I'm still looking over my shoulder figuring someone else is J.R. Ward. And clearly these people are really fucking confused. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Alexandra Harvey, author of How to Marry a Duke, book two in the Cinderella Society series. Now, the hero of this book is, his name is Dougal Black, but he is not, unfortunately, a member of the Black Dagger Brotherhood. I just want to <laughs> make that clear right just at for the clarity's sake. <laughs> However, he is in one of my favorite all-time plots in historical, which is, I'm a regular guy, I'm a miller. Oops, I'm a Duke. <laughs> Honestly, I think this is my favorite microtrope of all microtropes. A, a local woman, Meg Swift, right? She's the goddaughter of a Duke, and she has a real problem. She is trying to keep her estate afloat, even though her uncle is, like, jacking up rents and... A jerk. Oh, yeah, making everybody miserable. The Dougal and Meg are going to team up together to defeat a battalion of debutantes, hoping to, like, lure him into marriage. She He needs a lot of instructions on how to be a Duke, so it's got that Pygmalion effect, and also a little bit of a marriage of convenience, because, look, someone has... It, if they don't get married, the Prince of Wales is going to pick a bride for him. How to Marry a Duke is available in print and ebook wherever books are sold. And thanks to Alexandra for sponsoring the episode. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about um, the community of author, your writing community. So you talk about um, back in the day, Sue Grafton being your mentor. Yeah. Other people, I mean, when you, I imagine when you make a a leap, like the one that you were sort of forced to make, and then luckily Wrath and the brothers all turned up, um, there there are people who you are talking to or no no I really there was one person Doc Jess Jess Anderson and that was it 
I don't have a lot of people in my life. I, I am a social misfit loser who happens to look like, you know, I, I, I mean, here's the thing. I, I love, I'm a, I'm a collector of antique jewelry. I, I love Art Deco stuff. So yeah, shove my runner's body in a black dress and throw some diamonds on it. And I look like I know what the fuck I'm doing. Okay. That, that, that is an external manifestation. It has nothing to do with the fact that I am a social misfit, misfit on the, in the inside. Um, Doc Jess uh, was published by um, Signet New American Library. Actually, she wrote this great Mayan series I love. And she was really, she was really, really, really supportive and helpful, but, but she was really... It and I, and then you know, what about editorially at the very beginning? One of the things that we try to do here is like just say the names of the people who were doing the work who might never have been spoken about. Was there was your editor at the early, in the early stages instrumental in in sort of shepherding yes, I will, Black Dagger Brothers? I will, yes, I will tell you, um, Kara Caesar, who was my first editor for the Black Dagger Brotherhood, and she was phenomenal. And the thing was, she left me alone. The reason why I wanted to go with her is because when I spoke to her, she said, these are your books. I want your, what you want to happen in these books. I want it to be your vision. I will give you advice. I will tell you what I think. It is 100% your, your decision and she said, I want you to push this book as hard as you can. Go as far as you can. She goes, if we have to pull it back in revisions, we will. I was just going to say, I'm so happy that you said that out loud because I think that is a thing that so many new writers struggle with is this idea of like having to please so many people. And so they water, they sort of pull back before pull it gets to the desk. What, one one corollary of me being an absolute boob about social interaction is I don't really have the great thing about the Black Dagger Brotherhood is, is it's just what came out of my head. And, and so I don't believe in creative writing classes. I don't believe in, in, in writer critique groups. Um, again, this is for myself. I'm not saying if it works for you, uh, please know. I, I support, there is no one, it's like a pair of shoes. Every size eight is not going to fit the same. You have to be what's right for you and do what's right for you. For me, I didn't even sh share my books with Doc Jess. I, I didn't even share them with anyone. And I don't think you can write to committee. I think if you try to please too many people because reading is so subjective, you end up filing down the things that make what comes out of your mind and are expressed in the way you express them. If you file them down too much, it just becomes oatmeal, you know? Not right. And I don't want to disparage people who like oatmeal. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're very, no, no, you're so, very careful. And I, and I appreciate that, but I do think like... It is, you know, I think, I hope our listeners understand, like everyone's experience is different. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you what I fear. What I fear when, all right, so like when I have these conversations, I'm just just talking to you two, okay? There's no J.R. Ward here. I get worried that if I turn around and I say, I, I write seven days a week, I don't take vacations, I run at noon every time, I am really hard-headed and thick-skinned in business. I am not sentimental or emotional. 
as soon as the first draft leaves, it is a product to me. It is not, it is not that sacred space. I don't look for support or encouragement from anyone other than my small family and a short list of friends. I don't believe in critique groups. I never took a creative uh, writing lesson. I'm afraid if J.R. Ward says these things, then someone who would thrive under a completely different set of circumstances will not do what's good for them because J.R. Ward said from her fucking ivory tower that, oh, this is the only way to do it. So that's why I'm always very, very, very careful because I am aware that one, I, I, I've had the product of an incredible amount of privilege. You know, I, I mean, from my background to my education to my family's situation and my husband's family's situation, I have a huge amount of privilege that's a huge tailwind ushering me through all these things. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just crazy disciplined. I'm, I'm a nut bar for discipline, which is something that is very characteristic of people on the spectrum. I have to do the same thing every day at the same time. Otherwise, I get very anxious and I feel uncomfortable. I don't like to travel. I don't like vacations because unless I have this incredible structure, the anxiety I feel is not, I, I can't hold it in my body. I get so anxious. So part of Part of the, the way I've structured my life and been so successful and published so much is because of my incredible, it's the neuroatypical shit that I just happen to get handed out, you know, that I, that I you know, th that's what you're born with. You know, it's not, it's not a strength. It's not discipline. It's being neuroatypical and kind of trying to find my way in the world and not be scared and nervous all the time. So I don't want anyone to ever feel like I know anything about anything because the truth is, is the individual needs are the most important thing and getting your needs met and finding support as you need support and finding champions as you need champions. And, and, you know, when I talk to my writer friends, the only thing that I, and my writer friends, I'm talking about Christine Feehan, I'm talking about Kristen Ashley, I'm talking about um, Chris Rice, um, Gina Showalter. Um, you know, everyone has their, the only thing that's in common with all those people is they do tend to write pretty much every day, mm -hmm. pretty much every day. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, everyone's workspaces are different and schedules are different. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a one size fits all kind of world. And I think it's important for me not to pretend. I just don't want anyone misinterpreting that. I think I know a goddamn thing about anything. <laughs> I, uh, I, okay. An hour in, I, you know, things it's okay. <laughs> I, I have a question. So, you know, you said originally that you thought that the series would be 10 books and you just published the 20th book, obviously more are on the way. How is there a limit to this world or is it continuing to appear for you? It's so far, it's continuing to appear to me. I mean, you know, with Lassiter taking over and The Chosen being free and Davina showing up from the Fallen Angel series, I think it's just like the world we live in. Yeah. That, it, it, that there's a continuing sense of evolving. And, you know, I know a lot of readers like the first six books the best because they're very, tend to be relationship focused. Well, they're and home I, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, and then I know that other people are really super excited that Davina's come and other people hate her. And it's sort of the same way where we experience living in our world, which is things you like or things you don't like. And 
you know, so no, I don't, I mean, as long as the good Lord keeps me well and readers still want to read it, you know, I, I would love to continue to publish these books. 20 Black Dagger Brotherhood books, but also other, I mean, you've, you've done all sorts of other stuff too over the last however many years. And so, I mean, are there, is it just, you know, you wrote the, you wrote the series about the Bourbon Kings the firefighter, the one about the firefighter in Boston. Right. I mean, are yeah. these just sort of, again, they appear to you the same way? Do all the yeah. books work that way? Yeah. Yeah. I have a book coming out next year called The St. Ambrose School for Girls. And it's about a 15-year-old um, and her experience with her bully at a prep school set in the early 90s in Massachusetts. And it was a story that had to be told. It's not going to be marketed to J.R. Ward readers. It's not that kind of a, it's not a J.R. Ward book. But it was just something that had to be written. And it came to me actually in a dream. And I wrote the book in three weeks and then revised it for three years Uh it, you know, it's a first person account. The voice is not J.R. Ward. It's so I, I, I'm very, is it going very to be published under J.R. Ward or is it a Jessica? No, or is it? no, it's, 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 I th- we're going to, I think what we're going to do is just put it under, I, I, we haven't figured out exactly whether it's Jessica Bird, but it, it's not a J.R. Ward book. And I don't want to, people who love J.R. Ward books and the, the voice and the world, I don't want to, get it confused. You know, I don't want them to go out and pay a lot of money for a book that they may not enjoy at all. You know what I mean? I mean, they're smart enough to figure out what they want to read. I'm not suggesting that, but like, yeah. So, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have these other worlds appear and I'd love to write them. And and if they find an audience, great. And if they don't, that's fine too. I say, because again, it's all about that those, those sacred hours where you're sitting by yourself and it's five in the morning and it's just you and the world and your keyboard. Like that's the very intimate space that is just such an incredible blessing. And to be able to make money off of being in that space, I won the lottery for as far as I'm concerned, you know? Do you, th- when you think about J.R. Ward... Um, and all these other books, the, your other books too, do you think, are, are you able to sort of pinpoint what makes, what's the hallmark of a J.R. Ward text of one of your books? Um, is there something that you, what, when we talk to Jane N. Krentz for the yeah. series, she yeah. talks, she, I'm, yeah. I'm sure you know this, Jane talks a ton about core story. Yeah. Um, and is there something that you feel like, a story you come back to again and again because it's important to you that it be the it be the story that you noodle. No, because I have no control over my stories or the characters or where they go. So I you see, and this is why I always feel like I fail with the, the craft conversations. <laughs> no. I don't have any, you know, I, I, I don't have any core. There's no there's no story for me because I don't create these stories. Mm-hmm. These stories are revealed to me by the pictures in my head. And so I can't the 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 only thing to think about J.R. Ward is there is this stupid ass humor that comes out and a lot of use of <laughs> vernacular. And so I feel like to some degree that bippity boppity kind of <laughs> many hyphened made up words, the, 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 the rank violation of, of adjectives and adverbs and nouns. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, the Chicago manual of style burns like somewhere you know in new york in my copy of just a room, one, smoke. one of my books lands and like half of her reference shelf just explodes you know Brim, brimstone um, everywhere 
<laughs> yeah, brimstone everywhere. So, I mean, that's the only thing that I can think. But again, that's a writing style voice thing more right. than a, yeah. a story. I thing. mean, it's interesting because we, I've never, we've never spoken before, and I can hear you now. I yeah, feel that's like what the next time right. I pick up a Black Dagger Brotherhood yeah. book. The, the people who are, are actually in my life, they, they say that they're like, oh my God, you, that's the voice. I was like, well, who the fuck do you think's working on this? <laughs> you know? Jesus, you think, you know. Amazing. Is there a book that you that you can tell is like a reader favorite? I it, it, I think Dark Lover is one of them. I think yeah. Lover, I, I, you know, it, particularly the first six books, I think yeah. people have found parts of themselves. One of the things that I like, and I didn't consciously do this, but I like the fact that so many of the brothers have very specific either physical challenges, mental challenges, challenges of, you know, that, that are part of their origin stories to kind of overcome. And the, I'm struck by the number of people who have come forward and said, you know, Fury is my favorite book because I or my partner have struggled with addiction or, you know, and I'm not doing, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. Uh, you know, I, no. I, the, 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 you know, the, you know, Zeta's backstory um, and the abuse that he suffered and, you know, whether it's someone who's sight impaired or whatever, uh, um, it's, it's, I, I really, that's one of the things that I love that so much of the human condition can be revealed in this world. that's about vampires. You talked about putting Zeta's book, making sure Zeta's book was number three so that you got a chance to tell it. Cause I have a three book contract. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's, it's funny. To, it's always interesting to me because over the course of these conversations, we've we've talked and heard a lot of stories about how that I I feel like Zeta's book. When I came to the Black Dagger Brotherhood, and I came to it slightly later, I came to it in, in book five, and then read all five books in a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh my god! And, and when I came to it, the people who had recommended it to me all had said something about Zeta's book. Like, I feel like his story and that story has really resonated with so many readers. And so when you said to, when you said, you know, I, you knew you had to tell that story, it's a thing that keeps coming back. We hear that, um, you know, Lisa Kleypas, her, her most oh, popular she's fabulous, book, by the way. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, her, her most popular book poured out of her, uh, um, Right. The uh, Lord of Scoundrels by Loretta Chase, Lord of Scoundrels just poured out of her. And she said yeah. she knew. They just felt like those were the books that would Yeah, resonate. that would reach people. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to hear that. Well, it was not it was not that I it was not that I wanted to reach people with the book. It was that I needed to get the book out of me. Yeah. Right. You know, right. like like yeah. like I never really thought that yeah, again, I'm I'm con- I know this sounds I hope I don't come across as this Pollyannish kind of like you don't, not Pollyannish no, is the wrong word. But it's just always such a it's different for everyone, right? Yeah. The process. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just I knew that that having the opportunity and the privilege to tell his story was something that if I did not get that opportunity, I was never gonna get over it. Yeah. Because it was just something and and you know, I have to say of all the books that I've ever written, that's my favorite. I guess mm-hmm. favorite's the wrong word. That's the most powerful book for me as the author. That's what it is. Yeah. I would say uh, Lover Awakened is number one, Dark Lover is number two, and The Shadows is number three, where, um, you know, Trez lost his um, 
Trez lost his shell. And so, I mean, those are the three books that were the most powerful. Well, and then also Lover Unbound. That's because Vicious is a fucker oh, who didn't God, want yeah, me to tell him. a story at all. And, oh, I believe um, that. I believe that. that. Oh, that fought you all the way, I bet. Yeah. My ass. And he is still, oh, he's just, he's, he and I, oh, God. Uh, my favorite is, well, we call them, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I'm real, we're terrible at names, so we just rebrand them. So Lover, Rage, and Mary, which I'm looking at, okay. Lover Eternal, is, is my favorite. Yeah. But, you know, I love a sort of uh, fish-out-of-water story, right? Like, yeah. So, you know, yeah. here is, you know, Rage and his demon, and then, you know, poor old Mary comes along and has no idea yeah. what's going on. I am a sucker for that story, so I love well, that. Mine is Lover, Avenge, number seven, Revenge. Oh, when you say the too. first six, I'm like, come on. It just Start saying the first seven. seven. <laughs> oh, she is. So there's this wonderful reader who is so hysterical. And she is, she is like, pimps need love too. She's like, girl. She's <laughs> like, she used to give me the heart. She's oh, like, why are you going so right great. about my pimp? Oh, he's just wonderful. He's, he's great. Exactly. He's and wonderful. The ending when the net and the, I mean, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's great. Yeah. And also it's so hot. That phone sex yeah. bit. I mean, there's just a lot in it to love. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. <laughs> um, Justice was amazing. And I'm so very grateful, and I appreciate I, And I hope you know that when you said, like, trailblazers, they're like, oh, my God, they want to talk to me? I was like, wow. I was like, that's really, really, really fucking cool. And so I was like, yeah, I would love to. Um, it's such an important thing to us to be sort of marking all of uh, you and others who have really blazed trails through romance. And, and I, I mean, I think we couldn't have done it without you, the, when we made our list, you were right at the top of it. So, well, thank you, Sarah. And thank you very much, Jen. And I'm very, very grateful to have been considered. Listen, every one of these is different. I know. It's bananas. I know. It's great. It is great. I just love, I really like love when people are like, I have a story to tell. Right. And it feels so gratifying because we know so many of these authors through their books, but it's such an amazing opportunity to like get to know them as people, right? To hear that from their end. So I love that she was like, let me take it away. I have things to tell you. (laughs) Especially because we did Dark Lover in season two, as as I mentioned. And um we had a big conversation during that episode about what she was doing and yeah. what she was trying to say and post 9-11 and Susan Faludi and feminism. <laughs> right. And like, it was so fascinating. I mean, it's just proof, right, that that Venn diagram of like what the author means, what your English teacher says the author means <laughs> is Your English teacher is right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> You know what, though, was really interesting for to hear her talk about, like, paranormal, right? I mean, those are things that we've talked about, but, again, from the point of view of a of an author, to, like, oh. sort of hear that all, like, here's how I think it, here's how it was working, here's how it resonated with people. Because when she started and she was like, you could tell me to fuck off <laughs> if I'm wrong, I was like, for sure what she's about to say is 1,000% right. Right. And, um... When she was basically like conflict is queen, like contemporaries make it difficult yeah. to have believable, intense conflict. How many times have we said that? A million. Which is why 
enemies to lovers, rivals to lovers, fake relationships are basically like all contemporaries right now, yeah. right? Because there is a struggle to believe the stakes are high enough to keep two people separate for 400 pages. And then, I mean, she's 100% right that the appeal of paranormal is that high stake. Yep. Absolutely. The world could actually end. Well, and right now the world could actually end, but in a terrifying real way. No, but that's like an end is nigh, kind of like placard in Times Square thing, which right. is a different It's a different feeling. And, and horrible. So it's like, right, like sort of that thing where you're like, it, how is it, what's the difference? I, I found myself thinking, like, what's the difference between like escapism versus like dystopia? Right? And it's the fact that the world is going to improve. Well, there is a happily ever after, right? Right. Always. Right. And that means the world, too. Yeah. And that was really interesting to me because the critique of the Black Dagger Brotherhood world is legit. But when you talk about it in terms of, well, like, of course, but it has to start off as grim and misogynistic. I loved that because we spent so much time talking about that in... um, when we did our deep dive, because it is so grim and it is so misogynist and there is, but she's a hundred percent right. Like you have to have somewhere to grow. And there's something really, as she was saying that I was thinking about how that fundamentally is the difference between a series like Black Dagger Brotherhood and a series like what, what she referenced, like Virgin River. Right. Right. Like what, Readers have to, the disbelief that readers have to suspend and the trust that readers have to place in J.R. Ward at the beginning of the Black Dagger Brotherhood series is immense. immense. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is so dark and so bleak and there is such immense threat that you have to trust that she is carrying you through yeah. on this journey. The first book is like, it's dark. You're kind of like drawn into this world. Then she talks about how she breaks a big rule in book number two, right? Which is having rage, sleeping with other women. And then it's Zadis books number three. Like she never said, oh, I thought Zadis book could be number two. Because I think you really have to be able to trust her. So that's like a little bit of a, like a, a test almost, right? Like, how does this go over? If you can trust me breaking this rule, then can you trust me by giving you a hero who has been truly, truly damaged by what he has been through and, and is going to, and is going to harm his, his mate in ways that he does not intend. So it makes sense to me that like Zeta's book had to be number three because you have to build up trust for a couple of books before you're ready to deliver. I mean, if if you she'd started with Zeta's book, no one would have. It would have been very hard. I mean, not no one. Someone probably it would have been the right book for them, but it wouldn't have been the right book for millions of people or however many people have read it. So right. it's really interesting to hear, even though the books come to her. Right, it's still really uh, from the outside clear how some of that had to work. Uh, we've talked about this before, that the the book just comes to me, like the mm-hmm. story just comes to me, the characters come to me, they just tell me what to write is a really remarkable thing that mm-hmm. she is not the only writer to speak this way about her, yeah. her work. And her and characters. It is so fascinating to me because 
I experience the exact opposite. <laughs> and it is like it, every day is like blood. Yeah. Um, you know, drawing blood. But the um But then but a sexy vampire some, can come along and drink that blood syrupine. Where's my sexy vampire is all I'm saying. <laughs> um I mean I'm here, I'm open to you. <laughs> um the but what's fascinating is it, when she talks about that, it's it's so clear that like, you know, because often you hear that in the ether or you see it written in a, te- in a you know, in an article and you think like, that can't be true. That has to be like, that has to be just like the image. But when you talk to her about her books, it's so clear that she, that is the truth. She, these people, these stories come to her and her work is not to use a Black Dagger Brotherhood term, but her work is scribe. Yeah, right, right. It's really interesting. Yeah, the scribe virgin it's, is not the – yeah, that's a really good point. I'll just yeah, I'm gonna sit with I, that for a minute. J.R. Ward is the scribe virgin. I, look, I'm not – I didn't think we had to say it out loud, but okay. Um, <laughs> you know what, though? I would love to talk about then how interesting that is in the context of – what she said many times, which is that she was fired. Interesting phrasing too. So, all right, before you get into what you want to say, I just want to say something like from the romance novel perspective, right? One of the things that I think is so fascinating about the way romance talks about, and when I say romance, I mean romance writers. I mean like the the community of writers who are traditionally published and re- rely on like Fortune 500 companies to purchase their books and pay their mortgage, right? Um, The way that we talk is often in these terms of career, right? Like, Like we work for a corporation. Did you get a raise on your new contract? Like were you, you know, you know, has your contract been renewed? Yes, but, you know, you can get fired. You can get, I mean, the, all these, these, this language is the language of corporate America in a lot of ways. And, when I say, speak this way in front of writers who are not romance writers, often I get, why do you talk about it that way? Like, why? And then when she talks about business, right? Like the idea of genre fiction, and I don't know if thriller writers or mystery writers um, or sci-fi writers, you know, talk about it this way, but certainly lit fic writers do not talk about it this way. And this idea of romance as an engine that that is business, right? Like, we are a corporate engine. And the, when she kept saying, I got fired, I got fired, I got fired, for romance writers, that is what it feels like. It feels like getting fired. For literary fiction writers, often it feels, I think it feels a little more like you've, you know, they've thrown your baby in a well. <laughs> Yes, because it's your art, right? It's your art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and whether that's right or wrong or whether that's how we should – like, No, it's fascinating. It just is. It's a way that people talk in this world that is different. Well, and I – it really – I heard echoes. I know I've mentioned this before. When I watched the – that documentary about romance writing and Jenny Cruzy said, like, once you're done with it, it's a can of soup. Right, and it's someone's job to sell that can of soup. Really fascinating. Yeah, it really heard echoes of that. Right, which is if you're a genre fiction writer, at some point you have to be able to say, "I turned in the book. How it lives in my heart 
yep. is different. It's dedicated to my hero because we are it we are interconnected on the page. Right. But then and it's soup. And then it's soup. Now it is a product to be sold and people right. who buy it can it's say whatever like, they want about it. It was just fascinating. Writes the books. Yeah. And J.R. Ward is the can that they go in. And it's really fascinating. Yeah. It was and, really um, fascinating. I mean, obviously there were a few things she said that really resonated with me at like the the sort of constant fear of like Maybe they won't come for this next one. Like, yes. Maybe they won't like this next one. The the feeling, I, I, I mean, I loved how authentic all of that felt. Um, and we've heard that from other writers. And the, again, we heard it again when, you know, unprompted, she was like, I don't, I don't think about being J.R. Ward. Like, I, I never, I never had a moment of realizing like, oh my God, I'm a big deal. Um because that's Even, dangerous to realize you're a big deal, right? Terrifying, right? Because they're, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Right. Or then you're, the you know, further you fall. then you're James Patterson telling everybody that, uh, you know, <laughs> white men don't get a fair shot in publishing. So, you know, once you start to buy into your own. Poor Jimmy Pats. <laughs> once you start to buy into your own ethos, right, your own myth, I think that that, it, and you know what, I feel like that's probably, that's true in probably every industry. I mean, even as a teacher, I, you know, I, I teach graduate students and some of them say like, I'm so nervous. I feel the imposter syndrome. And it's kind of like, well, that's good. The minute you start resting on your laurels, the minute you stop being scared is when you start phoning it in. I mean, I do think also she just nodded to the fact that she's a woman, right? And Mm -hmm. this is the thing that women grapple with, taking up space, holding space, like, being able to say out loud, I am J.R. Ward, and that is, like, I can command 400 people to a book signing. Um, and I think that, I mean, I loved her story about her mom, too. I mean, I love so much about this conversation. You know, as Sarah and I, like, continue to think about, like, who, you know, like, who are the people we want on the show as trailblazers? And then, like, kind of, like, what does it mean to be a trailblazer? Like, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is it's not that you had to be the first to do something, although we had plenty of people who were the first to do something, but it's that you have to make romance bigger somehow, right? You either bring new readers to the fold or you, you know, carve out some path or you you, you just have found a way to make romance like a little bit bigger. And that's the part I love because we have talked so much about the instinct to make ourselves smaller, So that's, I'm interested in people who, that to me is what a trailblazer means, right? Like you just made romance bigger somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because God, did she? Like she, and and I think that we don't, I I mean, yes, Christine Feehan, Sherilyn Kenyon, she named them. She named the people who were already doing the work before her. However, one thing that was not happening, I would argue, before that, especially in paranormal, was this kind of immense yes. world. Yes. This like, and not just world, you know, 20 books immense, a world that had trouble, problems, you know, real darkness that needed to be vanquished that wasn't a ba- one bad guy, right? That was like a systemic cultural darkness, um, and she's been, she's been doing that work for a long time. And those books, the books have really evolved to, you know, I, 
she she made it she talked about this about how they're 20 years old and so of course there are things in those books that you know are different now she's had to right. retcon things right. into the world over the years and she's also showing us as writers how we do that work right and how to be a, a how to be a decent person who is learning every day and like she talks about herself being well-intentioned like but getting things wrong and i think I think that's a lesson for a lot of us who are getting on in our career. Well, and I, I remember that from her RWA speech. You're talking about the speech at the Rita's, right? I remember, look, and maybe this is just me, so I'll own that. I think I have fallen a lot for, like, the ethos of, like, J.R. Ward superstar, right? And so when yeah. she gave that speech and was so humbled and so truly, like, you could tell, moved mm-hmm. by the, by being honored and recognized and what that meant to her in that room. I was really, it was it was deeply moving to me. It, this was not someone who ever, and now talking to her, I realize, like, she would have never taken that for granted. That was never, like, a, like, oh, yeah, of course I deserve this. And I was really won over by that speech. I We can put a link to it in show notes um, because it's on, you know, it's on YouTube. But I remember at the time thinking, oh, this, she is completely thrilled at, at, at this win. This means something to her, right? And now hearing her talk about, you know, the imposter syndrome and, and kind of the way that feels, it doesn't surprise me that that's the case. There's one thing, I'm sorry, there's like a rough transition, but there was one thing I kind of wished I would have asked her about, but... Oh, I have something too. Go ahead. The other thing that I feel like I remember when I first started reading the Black Dagger, Hood, Black Dagger Brotherhood was how firmly rooted it is in pop culture. This was not someone who was afraid at all to talk about, you know, the razor phone and the, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You oh, know? Like shit kicker boots and like... <laughs> yes. The, I mean, just like... I remember, yeah, like the, the, it really felt like. It was of a time. Yeah. And so I feel like that was the other thing that felt really revolutionary. This was not someone who was generically trying to build a world that was kind of like, right. It was a dark paranormal world that existed completely in our modern time. And that felt really pretty cool too. It's very cool. Yeah. I wanted to ask her over the course, when she talked about, you know, her coming up and reading romance when she was in high school and, you know. Yeah, what she read. Yes. I I wish I had in that moment said, wait, can we pause? Who were your favorites? What were your, yeah. you know, I mean, it's clear she was reading categories. Please take a picture of your bookshelves and send them to me. <laughs> I know, right? right. <laughs> I'm not a creeper. I just want to see your books. <laughs> what is totally normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um listen. That was it, it was, was great. It was great. I'm really I'm really thrilled that we had her on. I'm I know that we don't spend for those of you out there who are always asking us about paranormal like we don't spend enough time talking about paranormal I think because season 1, you know, we did so much paranormal work. Um but I am really happy to have had Jared Ward on. And um, I literally walked out of the interview or I walked out of the conversation and like knocked on Eric's office door and I was like, that was really cool. It was really cool. cool. (laughs) It was really cool. So every time, every time. Speaking of trailblazers, Sarah, next week. 
Next week, we will be talking about Heartbreaker, Sarah's new book that comes out. I will be interviewing her like she's someone I don't know. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) Next week is Heartbreaker Week. You can uh, pre-order the book right now at any bookstore that you like. Um, You can support my local indie, Word, in Brooklyn, uh, although your book will probably be late now, but you can get it signed with goodies. This has been Faded Mates. Thank you so much to Alexander Harvey, author of How to Marry a Duke, to Avon Publishing, publishers of Beverly Jenkins's To Catch a Raven, and to Blackstone Publishing, publishers of Nora Zelovansky's Competitive Grieving, for sponsoring this week's episode. As a special treat from Blackstone Publishing, you can stay tuned for a preview of Nora Zelovansky's Competitive Grieving. Have a great week, everyone. Either he's dead, or my watch has stopped. Groucho Marx. Afraid of death? Not at all. Be a great relief. Then I wouldn't have to talk to you. Catherine Hepburn. I have lost friends. Some by death, others by sheer inability to cross the street. Virginia Woolf. Prologue. What would I tell them about you? The ones who only knew your contours? You as a paper doll on which to pin pictures? What would I tell the ones who shared excited whispers over green juices the morning after? Who posted the news online with frowny faces and then moved on with their days? What was the story I'd want them to know? Was it of a little kid? spastic and unchecked, bouncing off walls? Was it of a teenage you, first gawky, then too cool? Was it of us falling against each other during those struggling years? You sitting next to me wrapped in a comforter, sleep and cigarettes on your breath, telling me you loved me as I shook my head and pronounced it untrue. For sure, it was not the story we'd all like to forget. You, alone, in that strange apartment, the one I never saw. Would I tell them you were funny? Because you were. To me, one of the funniest people in the world. Would I tell them about your talent? Because it was boundless. But what good is something that loses all value in the dark? Would I tell them that you were adorable? Because you were. Some of the time to me, a lot of the time to others. Would I tell them that you were selfish, but sweet? You had a soft spot for kindness in others, but didn't require it of yourself. I would not tell them that you loved me, although I know now that you did. In a way that was at once simple and complicated as hell. Like a sibling like a best friend, like an object, like an idea, like a competitor, like a book that you once loved and still carry from apartment to apartment when you move, formative, but no longer top of mind. What hole did you leave in the world, aside, of course, from the one in my heart? What would I tell those strangers, even the ones who thought they were your friends? What was the story of you? Chapter 1. 
Today, 10.46 a.m. Stuart, about our conversation two nights ago, I may have overreacted. A little. Okay, fine. A lot. I hate when you call me responsible, like it's a synonym for leper. It makes me feel like that lame friend you keep around for when you're feeling lame too. And I can just hear you saying, you're not lame. You just act like you are. And that makes me mad all over again. Frowny face. Whatever. Also, when you say you worry that if you weren't around, I'd become a cat lady, it's obvious what that implies about my romantic prospects. Would you call a man a cat lady? Hashtag microaggression. Why is everyone always so disparaging of cats anyway? The felines and I are all offended. Cat emoji, cat emoji, cat emoji. Wait, do you have a possible movie shooting somewhere far away? Is that what you're hinting at? The tropical resorts and exotic markets where you'll be living your best life while I'm being subsumed by fur balls? I'm mad, but still. Tell me. I want to live vicariously. I guess that's your point. My vicarious life. Whatever. That doesn't mean you're right. Middle finger emoji. Are you loving these emojis? I know you hate them. That just makes me want to use more. Surprise face emoji. Frowny face emoji. Crying emoji. Sick face emoji. Vomiting emoji. Anyway, I love you, even though you're a total jerk. Heart emoji. Text me when you can. And by that I mean get off your lazy ass and text me now. Today, 2.13 p.m. Hey, you're probably shooting MM today, but just let me know you got this, okay? So I know we're good. And I don't have to feel guilty about calling you an asshat behind your back. Today, 5.41 p.m. Hello? Anyone? Bueller? Today, 7.03 p.m. Dot, dot, dot.